You're listening to another New Hope Chapel New Hope podcast. Chapel podcast. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, my name is Steve Coleman. I'm one of the elders here and a member of the teaching team. Uh, we have five people that uh, sort of rotate through and uh, handle our messages for us on Sunday morning. Um, this is the second message on Genesis, and uh, it, a, a great, spectacular Memorial Day weekend to have it, uh, this first weekend in the new summer, and we are going to talk about the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. So the first weekend occurred sometime during uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll be talking about those chapters this morning. Well, last week, I, we introduced five themes to help us understand Genesis and the Bible. These themes inform us about context as we read the Old Testament, Genesis, uh, the prophets, when we read the Gospels, even the New Testament letters and the book of Revelation. Uh, there's a number of themes that we could say are important through the Bible. I'm not suggesting that these are more important than any of those, but uh, these five uh, seem to be good ones as we think about Genesis and, and look at how the story moves from Genesis right on through to the book of Revelation. The themes that we talked about were kingdom, so where you read God's kingdom in the Bible, this would be uh, connected to that. We also read that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that he uh, owns principalities and powers, so there's, there's a competing uh, kingdom. And, uh, and we have been, as believers, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Sacrifice was the second one we talked about, and uh, that is a theme that the innocent has to die for the guilty. And it sets up the uh, sacrifice of Christ, God sending His own Son uh, on our behalf to become sin for us, to die on the cross in our place, set apart. Or when you read the word holy, that comes up a, a lot of times, beginning in Genesis, runs right through to Revelation. We see that, um, that theme. Also, bottom left corner, seed or offspring, because there's that great promise we're going to be talking about next week as we look at Genesis 3, that God gives about the offspring of the woman, and how that, that seed, that offspring is going to bring deliverance. And then finally, fellowship. And we note that fellowship is sort of undergirds what goes on in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God's interest in man and being with man. And uh, we, we read in Revelation 2 that great culmination that's described as the wedding supper of the Lamb, where where the uh, union of Jesus and all of us who believe is described in terms of a bride coming and getting married to her bridegroom. Uh, and so that great metaphor is illustrating all the things through Scripture where God is in pursuit of us and wants a relationship with us. So we're going to try to point these out when they show up. Uh, you can remember these themes with a handy acrostic so if you just get that down, you'll be set. All right, speaking of these themes, there's one 
uh, event that we're not going to have time to talk about today, and that is God's seventh day of rest. And that taps into the theme of set apart. You see in there, uh, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He set it apart. And um, so that's one place where that theme shows up. We're going to be looking at two things these chapters seem to emphasize that throw light onto the larger story of the Bible. Um, And there's a lot that we could talk about in Genesis 1 and 2. These are the two things we probably have time for. One is God's initiative in creation. I think there's something dramatic in that that I haven't heard people teach on before. And secondly, God's creation of mankind into His image. Well, looking at Genesis 1-1, start at the beginning, we have in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God sets the tone right away at the beginning. He kicks off everything. Uh, In this book of beginnings, and the word Genesis means beginnings, in this book of beginnings, this is the first activity, the first beginning of all things that are going to begin. There was nothing. Nothing moved, nothing said anything, nothing thought to do anything, nothing except God who did all three. I read through Genesis 1 and 2 to look at all the times it talks about God doing something. And there's more than 50 times where it talks about God doing something in these two chapters. That's staggering. The fun uh, number fact for the day. What is just as astounding is, to me, nobody else is mentioned as having done anything in chapters 1 and 2 except for Adam. And he does four things right at the tail end of chapter 2. There's a lot of things that must have happened. God says, you know, let... Let the the waters teem with fish. But then it has the phrase, and so it was. Not talking about anything that happened. None of the hows of it, how it happened, all the details of what exactly happened. Everything is from God's perspective. Everything, the text screams out, God, God, God. It's all about what God has done. And he did a lot, the way the text expresses it. It's so dramatic, it has to remind us that in our relationship with him, he's doing all the work. The prime example is that promise in chapter 3. We're going to talk about it next week, but uh, God is going to provide the promised seed. Our salvation, we have God demonstrating his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile to God, He sent His unique Son to die for us. All the work of salvation was accomplished by Christ on the cross. All we need to do is put our faith in Him, to believe. By believing, we can have life in His name. Paul writes, even in the ministry and work that he's doing, and he's talking about unity, that's the context in 1 Corinthians, but he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who made things grow made spiritual growth happen in the people there. And God promises to faithfully perform His work 
in us until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, my wife is sold now on these companies that you hire, and they come to your house and you point at stuff, and they say, no problem. They whisk in with an army of people, and the net, you turn around and all the stuff's gone, and they've cleaned up in their place. Her father, uh, they had to close out his household, and the whole bottom floor was just stuff. Every bit of it was just stuff. And uh, she and her sister did that. Uh, God gives us that kind of full service. He provides everything for us. He basically says, believe. Take a step in faith. And he comes and supplies. He takes care of it. In a sense, we point. And, and God's there encouraging us, helping that along. Another great example of what he does, but this is outside of Genesis, but it connects and also connects with our theme of kingdom in Revelation. But then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated, was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. The God who makes things new came in Genesis 1-1 and created a heaven, heavens and the earth. And the dot, dot, dot is Genesis 3 and onward. And at the end of time in Revelation, we find that the this creation is passed away. And the God who makes everything new says, well, I'm going to make a new creation. So we have this one storyline in the Bible for number one creation. And we find even at the end of that, God says, I'm going to make a new creation. God's there. God's going to do the things. He brought this world into being, and he'll bring this world to an end. This new creation won't be disfigured by sin. It will be characterized by God's presence with his people. The text, supported by the rest of the Bible, makes a strong point that God's the initiator. He's the creator. He's in control, making our relationship with him the most important issue in our lives and what we should be thinking about. Because if we're believers, we're going to be living with him for a long, long time. So that's the one focus. God is the initiator in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, It's an important point that really sets the tone for the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. That second idea that we're going to look at is God's creation of mankind into his image. Genesis 1, 26 and 7 first describes the creation of man. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We have a problem with this passage. My version says, Uh, let us make mankind in our image. 
Your version may say man or some other word. There are various words in Hebrew to talk about man, woman, male, female. Let's talk just about a couple of them because I think it's important as we look through this section. Uh, One word for man is the word Adam. That's a transliteration from the Greek. That's the Greek word. uh, Sorry, Hebrew. Transliteration from the Hebrew. That's the Hebrew word, Adam. And it is used for man. It's also used for the idea of mankind, of people, of human, of someone, when you're talking about an indefinite, you know, somebody. It's related to a verb, A-D-O-M, which means to be read, R-E-D, to be read. And scholars speculate that maybe it developed from that word because, you know, we have this flesh tone to our skin. It's also interesting that it is, <clears throat> sounds like the Hebrew word for ground, which is Adama, A-D-A-M-A-H. So it sounds very much like that. Uh, so, Adam is used in, in a, when it's used in a generic way to mean man, it's the same way as if we, when we use it, we say, talk about man's quest for the stars since 1960. Uh, we're not talking about just the men on planet Earth or in the United States that have had this quest for the star. We're talking about people. Uh, we might hear the cry, man overboard, and uh, the, the general cry for a problem when somebody goes overboard, whether it's male or female or child. Another word for man that's used in Genesis 2 is the word ish. And it means man, often in context, it's used to talk about husbands, mates. uh, And this word signifies man as opposed to women. So it, it's often used for that husband-wife uh, relationship. And the corresponding word for woman is isha. So it's from the word ish with this extra suffix. Third word that's used in Genesis 1 and 2 is a word that means male. And it's pretty straightforward. There's male and then there's female, which is a, a derivation of this word. There are a couple more words for man, but they're not used in Genesis 1 and 2. But it, it is a little bit of a confusing landscape. This is a case in which Hebrew has more words for an idea than we tend to use. We tend to use fewer words, but they have a larger set of meanings to them. So going back to Genesis 1, let's see how the text reads. I've put Adam, man, in white text there and put Zachar for male. So it says, let us make Adam in our image, and we're not talking about, in this context, the person Adam in the sense of that guy, although uh, we have to read the rest of the context in Genesis 2 to, to get that, but let's make him in our image, our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, so that they may rule. So you have a God who's let us make man. That's the word Elohim, the plural, ver- the plural of that particular word for God, Elohim. 
So we have God saying, let us. So we have the, the Godhead talking. We have this, this plural God, the triunity talking. Make Adam in our image and our likeness so that they may rule. So there's a, there's a plurality in, uh, in the idea of creation here. Now it goes on in the bottom. So God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So that's the plurality that's intended when we talk about making Adam so that they may rule over the fish in the sea. So man and woman, woman rule over the fish in the sea, the uh, the the animal whole animal kingdom. Nothing. Um, so the creation of, of male and female is also described, actually, in more detail in chapter two, because chapter two depicts the world as being created to be the scene of human um, interaction, of human drama. Uh, Genesis 1 here, this, this verse that talks about the creation of, of man is really the goal and kind of the capstone, the crowning achievement of creation. We have all that's gone before in the, in the first 25 verses. God created this and said it was good. God said this and created that and said it was good. And we get here to this and we find for the first time God has a discussion and he creates Adam, and it says, and it talks another verse or two about how he provides for Adam, and then it says, then God saw it and said it was very good. So this is the crowning point of the creation, as is talked about in chapter 1. In chapter 2, um, the context here is a much deeper description of this creation of, of man and woman. We get some answers as to how and why which we don't get at all in chapter 1 for any of the creation. And we don't hear really much about the other parts of creation. So we have a little different focus and a little different description. So let's take a look at this. Uh, Genesis 2-7. And I've put in the, the various words, uh, the Hebrew words, so you can get the flavor. Then the Lord God formed a man, Adam, from the uh, ground, Adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, Adam, became a living being. So you can see the sort of the play on words that's here. I think that's Hebrew humor. <laughs> Not sure. But I, it's sort of, you know, that uh, almost sounds like, and uh, it's, it's part of the literature of it. So looking on to Genesis 2, 21 through 24. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs. Now the literal Hebrew there is one side part. Uh, and so that's the literal. We don't know that it was a rib, but that's the side. It's a significant part of the side. And so most translations will talk about ribs, and you hear about that a lot. But he took one side part, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made the woman. Now this is Isha, 
that set of words, ish for man, isha for woman, from the rib, taken out of Adam and brought her to the man, Adam. So we've got Adam talked about in chapter 1 as this um, kind of uh, multifaceted, dual person, male and female. And here we have Adam before this operation. And we've got Adam then mentioned after the operation. So um, is, 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 the, is it shifting to a proper name here? And then finally, the last section. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Well, just to give you a good context here, the Hebrew sort of literally, the best people can translate it is, this now at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. So he's a little more excited than it sounds like in English. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of man, Ish. So we know where the word Isha came from. She was taken out of man, Ish. But he's not talking about, he didn't say taken out of Adam. That is why a man, Ish, leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, that's the word Isha, and they become one flesh. So now we're back to talking about one again. So let's sort of dissect this and figure out uh, what's happening here. There are a couple levels that we can look at. We can look at this as it is, great literature, and in great literature, there are devices that are used, and one is metaphor, other uh, non-literal language, figurative language, that gets across points. And so if we, if we take a look at this thing, we could take a look at this from as a metaphor. So we have marriage, this whole uniting of man and woman together to form one body in marriage, to be one in marriage. And yet back earlier in, uh, in, in chapter 1, we had Adam being created, male and female, but as one, and it's from this one that a second was taken and, and now they're joined back in. So let's, let's sketch that action. So we have dirt, ground, and from ground, Adam is made. The original Adam, I put that there because it's that mankind. And from that original creation, God didn't go back to dirt and make a second one. He took a side part. And from that side part, we end up with man and woman. Isha, a woman who was taken from man, Ish. So you have man and woman. And that, that man and woman, as we metaphorically talk about, okay, what happens, how's, how are things constructed in this society, is that there's an institution of marriage, and these two end up becoming one in a very special way. So you have the one created from dirt, you go to two, you come back to one. It could be a very strong message on uh, how fundamental marriage is. I think one piece of what it's saying is 
that one of the primary, if not the primary purpose for marriage is kind of this oneness that happens. This, it's not good for, for mankind to live alone. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to be in relationship. And marriage is uh, the closest, perhaps, that you can get in, in a relationship. Um, other relationships can get very close, too, but we need relationships to function and to express what God once wanted from us to reflect His image. It could also be emphasizing this image of God, the plural God, creating the plural human, and so, and that, that plural human getting expressed in two, uh, male and female, gives us that same sort of um, reflection of the Godhead and how it operates. If we look at it and, and talk about the physical side, the biological reality, and some scholars suggest this, that that original Adam uh, had characteristics of both male and female. God didn't need to go back to ground to make the woman because he just separated what was joined together in a biological way there with the original Adam, separated it, and, and now you've created a complementary race of people, which again is a way that, that expresses both the Godhead and our need for relationship. So how you take that is... Uh, is up to you. Uh, in any event, I think the same major points come in here. Uh, while this oneness, this one flesh is reserved for marriage, we're all called to be in relationship. And as the body of Christ, uh, we are called to be in one body, a body in which each God works in each individual and he works in that community by distributing gifts of the Spirit so that we each have our role, we each have our part in it, where we're being providing the complementary kinds of, of ministry, and God works through us to build up other people in the body. And the Bible uses the same kind of term for that. Uses one. Uh, in Ephesians 4, First of all, he says, be completely gentle and humble and be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Paul also says in Thessalonians, a very practical passage about what we should be doing, he says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Just like in creation, we're to be modeling that oneness. In marriage, you have a specific kind of oneness, but as believers, 
we've got a spiritual oneness, a one in spirit that we're commanded to have, that we're designed to have, that we're created to have as God places us in the body of Christ. How can we best uh, do our part of being Christ to, to our brothers and sisters so that we all have this same relationship, so that we come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of God more, and we become that bride for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for uh, your great love for us, the love that we see in the way you provided for us in creation, and we thank you for uh, your spirit that makes us one. Help us to express that, to be good stewards of the gifts that you give us so that the whole body, as it's built together, will bring honor and glory to you. Thank you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.